Welcome to Sunday School Class for Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'm glad that we could be together today. Our lessons are taken from the Nazarene Quarterly, and today we will actually be looking at the second part of the lesson from August 16th. Uh, that lesson studied Psalm 51, that, that great psalm where David repents of his sin with Bathsheba, and David pleads for restoration and forgiveness. Last week, we looked at David's sin, how he got into the mess that he was in. Today, we have a more positive note. We're looking at David's restoration, how he's forgiven and then reconciled to God. But let's begin with prayer. I want to pray the prayer that Paul prays for the Philippians in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. You know, we begin last week's lesson by talking about tragedy. Tragedy is a distinct form of literature. It's the story of a hero who is brought low because of his own flaws. And we've seen this uh, many times in, in history and other places. Those who rise to the top, and then they seemingly have everything, and then it comes crashing down around them. One of the most relevant examples is that of former President Richard Nixon. He was President of the United States, a man of incredible intellect, he had great political skills, and he accomplished some amazing things while he was in office. But he was the only president to have to leave office, forced to resign because of Watergate. All of this brought about because of flaws in his own character. Now, last week we looked at a depressing story, the tragedy of King David, a man of great talents and spiritual gifts, the man who wrote many of the Psalms. He led Israel to its greatest heights of prosperity and power. But then it comes crashing down when he murders Uriah and takes Bathsheba for his own. So today we get to the second part of the lesson, much more positive, as I said earlier. We get to talk about David's restoration, how David is forgiven, and his return to a right relationship with God. So we are reminded, no matter how far we've fallen, no matter how badly we failed, God's mercy and grace is sufficient to restore us. Part one of our lesson I've titled, The Big Question, Why is David Restored? When we look at David's life after this has happened, why do we remember David as the man after God's own heart, rather than, say, the man who murdered Uriah and took his wife. Now, certainly David doesn't deserve forgiveness. We can't sugarcoat what he did. Those were horrible acts. And when you get to the climax, when you hear Nathan confront David and say, you are the man, you don't really like David very much. But as we look at this question of how David is able to be forgiven, I want to begin by comparing David with the first king of Israel, King Saul. Both of these men disobeyed. They committed sins against God. 
they rebelled against God's clear commands. Saul, you remember, was told to destroy the Amalekites. They were God's enemy, and Saul was told, wipe them out, the people, the animals, everything. And Saul destroyed most of the people. He spared the king, and he kept the best of the animals. I have here on a slide a couple of verses I want to share. These show you the response when these two men are confronted by God's prophets. Both of them are confronted and both say similar words. In 1 Samuel 15, 24, Saul answered Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's commands. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So we can see both of them said, I've sinned. Now, on another slide, we can see what the response was. And there was a very different response to Samuel or to Saul and to David. Saul is told by Samuel, You have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. But yet Nathan tells David, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. So we have to ask, why? Why is David forgiven and restored while Saul is rejected? On the face of it, David's sin seems much more serious than Saul's. So why do we see such different results? Saul's full response will tell us something here. He says the right words, I have sinned, but he never owns up to his sin. He never really takes responsibility for it. He never acknowledges that he's done anything that was all that wrong. When Samuel goes to confront Saul, Saul tells him, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. He says, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and I brought back Agag their king. But Saul is not telling us the whole truth here. This was not exactly what God had told him to do. Saul has changed the command here. And then Saul goes on to offer excuses. He says, The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, and they did it so that they could sacrifice to God. And Samuel rejects this. He tells Saul, To obey is better than to sacrifice. And only then does Saul finally say, I have sinned. But he goes on to add, I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. And you can see from Saul's later behavior, even though he knows God has rejected him, God has given the kingdom to David, Saul does everything in his power to kill David, to keep the kingdom in his own hands, to keep it for him and for his sons. Now, on another slide, I have David's response. And David shows us something very different. When he is confronted, he immediately owns up to his sin. He fully admits his own guilt. In Psalm 51, look at some of the responses of David. He says, Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. 
So you can see how David describes his actions. He doesn't hold back here. He describes his actions as transgressions, iniquity, evil. Uh, I have been a sinner from birth, he says. Now, David also surrenders to God's authority. He recognizes he's been in rebellion against God. Now, Saul never did. Saul kept saying, well, really, I did what God wanted me to do. David recognizes he has been in rebellion. Uh, he recognizes God had the right and the authority to give him commands and expect them to be obeyed. I have a, a slide here uh, with a scripture verse where David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David was admitting his rebellion. And that's important. It's important that we realize the big problem with sin is not necessarily the acts themselves. It's the spirit of rebellion that lies behind those acts. C.S. Lewis describes our condition under sin by saying, We are not just imperfect creatures who need improvement. We are rebels who must lay down our weapons. David surrendered to, Saul's author to God's authority. Saul never did. Now, if we're going to be restored to fellowship with God, if we're going to have our sins forgiven to be reconciled, we have to fully admit and confess to our sins. We have to end our rebellion against God. And that is not easy. There's something in us that resists this to the very end because this involves killing part of ourselves. You know, we live in a society that easily says the words, I'm sorry. But our society has lost what it means to truly apologize, to recognize we've done wrong, and to ask someone else to forgive us. We apologize by making statements like, I'm sorry if I have offended you, or even, I'm sorry if you were offended. I'm sorry it happened this way. And so we have many ways of saying sorry without truly admitting wrong. Because to be sorry, to tr be truly sorry, is the assumption of guilt on our part. It's the admittance that we have done wrong. Now, in part two of our lesson today, I want to look at David's dilemma. Now, David's problem was his sin was an intentional sin, what the Bible calls high-handed or great sin. It was a sin which directly challenged God's authority to set and enforce God's laws. This type of sin basically denied God's own righteousness. It denied that God was right to prohibit certain actions in the first place. It denied God was right in punishing these actions. So, a high-handed sin it set man up in place of God. It set man in the position of determining what was right and what was wrong. Now, we know God is just, and we know this because God is holy. God cannot be holy and allow injustice. When offenses have occurred, they must result in punishment. They can't be ignored. When God established His law, when He told men what they could and could not do, God also set up a justice system to deal for instances when that law was broken. And God's justice system had two distinct parts. 
part one was the sacrificial system. Someone who broke God's law could offer a sacrifice to make himself right with God. This sacrifice could be a sheep, a goat, maybe a bull, or something as small as a dove, a pigeon. But part two of God's justice system was to fall under the curse of the law, which was death. So someone who broke God's law could either offer a sacrifice and see that sin atoned for, or could be placed under the penalty of death. In either case, God's justice was affirmed. But the sacrificial system covered only unintentional sins. It did not cover intentional sins. For the man who sinned intentionally, deliberately, God's justice demanded one possibility, and that was the man was sentenced to death. I have a slide here of a verse from Numbers 1530. But an individual who does something wrong intentionally, whether a citizen or a foreigner, is blaspheming Jehovah. That person will be cut off from his people. Because he has contempt for the word of Jehovah and has disobeyed his command, that person will be cut off completely. His offense will remain with him. So the sacrificial system was set up to deal with unintentional sins. Now, unintentional sins includes more than just sins committed in absolute ignorance. Unintentional could also mean sins when you didn't realize the full importance of the sin. Uh, sins done with a degree of consciousness, you, you meant to do them, but you weren't really thinking them through. You weren't really understanding their seriousness. Maybe it was sins done impulsively, or it could be something done consciously but not deliberately. In the Old Testament, unintentional sins often involved negligence. You were being lazy in some regard. You weren't doing something you should have done. Now, this wasn't out of rebellion. It's just you didn't get around to it. Now, I have here on a slide uh, verses from Exodus chapter 21. And it gives us a good example of how the same offense could be intentional or unintentional. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. A man who set out to kill his neighbor, who planned out exactly what he would do, a man who knew God's commands against murder and decided, you know, I hate this guy. I'm going to do it anyway. That's a deliberate sin. But what if two neighbors who've never gotten along, they've always disliked each other. They run into each other. An argument begins. One reacts impulsively without really thinking it through. And a blow is struck and the neighbor is killed. The killing was not deliberate and premeditated. It happened inadvertently as a result of, of a random meeting where, as the scripture says, God delivered him into his hand. Both involved a killing. One was intentional, deliberate. The other was not. So the sacrificial system did not cover intentional sins, sins that were deliberate rebellions against God. Where you knew it was wrong, you did it anyway. These types of sins could only be handled by the second branch of God's justice system, the law. 
and God maintained justice by putting these offenders to death. Now, this had been set up from the very beginning. God told Adam and Eve in the garden, if you eat of this fruit, a deliberate rebellion against God, then you will die. So, rebellion against God, that's intentional sin. It could not be tolerated. Rebellion, in its essence, is setting up another person, another thing, even yourself, in God's place. God's holiness will not allow this. And this is David's problem. He had committed a very deliberate, intentional sin. He had set himself up in defiance against God and God's law. And for this, there was no sacrifice. So, God's justice placed David under the penalty of the law, which was death. Now, David was king, the most powerful man in the kingdom. No one is going to touch him. No one is going to put David to death. So David was not going to face the possibility of physical death, but David was under the penalty of spiritual death. He was separated from God. He was spiritually dead, and there was nothing he could do about it. You know, it was the custom in, in United States prisons up until about the 1960s when guards would escort a condemned man, a man sentenced to die. They would call out, dead man walking. And they would do this to let everyone know that, you know, a potential threat was coming through. Now, when they called this out, a dead man walking, the man obviously wasn't dead. He was walking down the hallway. Physically, he was alive, but it was only a matter of time. Sooner or later, he would be dead. And this was David's situation and our situation. David was physically alive for the few remaining years of his life, but in reality, he was already dead. I have a slide here of Colossians 2.13 where Paul makes this plain. He says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, Christ, made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now, I have another slide here that shows verse 16 of Psalm 51. David was stuck. He knew that there was no sacrifice. And in verse 16, David says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. So we see David recognizing his dilemma. David then can only do two things. And this is what is so key about David's repentance. First, David surrenders. His sin, that he had rebelled, that he had basically told God, you don't have the right to tell me what to do. He has to surrender that attitude to recognize God's authority and God's righteousness, to recognize God has the full authority for the breaking of God's laws, to set penalties for these. I have a slide here of verse 4 and verse 17. Verse 4, David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And then in verse 17, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart you, God, will not despise. So David is telling us, I can't offer an animal sacrifice. The only thing I can give you is a broken spirit.
Now, the second thing David does is he throws himself upon the mercy and the grace of God. He places himself in God's hands and he begs for mercy. I have a slide here of verse 1 of this Psalm 51 where David cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. David's words reveal his understanding. There's nothing he can do. There's nothing uh, that's in his power. Anything that's going to be done has to be done by God. And, God, and David continually asks God to do for David what he can't do for himself. David says, wash me, cleanse me, restore my salvation, create in me a clean heart. Now, David, without realizing it, is calling upon the blood of Christ. He's calling for something above and beyond the scope of the law. He's calling upon the salvation that Paul describes. I have a slide here of Romans chapter 3. Listen to how Paul describes this salvation. But now, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. And on the next slide, God's, or Paul writes, God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So Paul is telling us there had to be a righteousness from God that surpassed that of the law. And this righteousness had finally been made known through Jesus Christ, a righteousness through faith in Christ to all who believed. Uh, For all have sinned, all would need this. And then through Christ, they could be justified freely by His grace. This redemption that comes through Christ is going to be enough to atone for all of our sins, the intentional and the unintentional. We have to realize this was God's plan from the beginning. The law was not a mistake. It wasn't something that God tried and then realized, ah, this is not going to work. The law was never set up to fully justify men before God. It was always intended to be a partial solution. God's full solution, the provision for full salvation from both unintentional and intentional sins, this was always to be through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Ephesians chapter 1 says, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. In Him, meaning in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And so the law was given under Moses, and this did a lot for the Jewish people. It enabled them to live as God's people. It established them as part of the covenant with God, but it left them with one big problem. Commit an intentional sin, one that the sacrificial system was not designed to atone for, 
and you were at war with God under the penalty of death with no recourse. At some point, all Israelites would have found themselves in this situation where they had intentionally sinned. Now, I have a slide here of Romans 7.24. In this verse, we find the Apostle Paul describing his own experience with sin and trying to deal with that under the law. And he cries out, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? So, we have to realize this problem was not unique to the Israelites. We're in exactly the same situation today. All of us have deliberately sinned against God, set ourselves up as rebels. If we're honest, we can think back to times when we knew exactly what God wanted us to do, and we chose to defy God and do what we wanted to do instead. I have a slide here of Romans 3.23, where God's Word tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in 1 John, 1 John 1.10, we read, If we claimed we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So all of us find ourselves in this situation as dead men walking. We've died, we just don't know it yet. Now, in part three, I want to look at God's solution. And this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So God's solution to David's problem was his plan of salvation. His plan to send His only Son, Jesus Christ, as the solution to this problem. To remove us from under the curse of the law, this sentence of death. Now, Paul lays this out for the Galatians. In Galatians 3.10, Paul writes, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, uh, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So, the law made it clear. Those who rebelled against God, they were under the penalty of death. This was the curse of the law. But, I have a slide here of Galatians 3.13. Paul tells us God's solution. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The, the very core of our salvation is that Christ bore our punishment. Christ took on the curse of the law for us, the curse of death, so that Christ died to free us from the penalty of death. Now, uh, many times Christ is referred to as the Lamb of God. And I have a slide here of John 1.29. Now, this is when John the Baptist first sees Jesus coming. He calls out, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, this word behold in the Greek is eke. It's an exclamation of wonder and admiration. Uh, Spurgeon writes, Nothing of greater wonder ever seen than that God Himself should provide the Lamb. And even angels admire and marvel at this mystery of godliness. In Revelation, we see the final triumph of Christ. And the main image of Jesus that's shown in Revelation is the Lamb. I have a slide here of several verses. Revelations 5.12 Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. 
And then in chapter 7 of Revelation, John describes seeing a great multitude of people. He says, a multitude of people from every tribe and people and nation and language. They're all standing before the throne of God, and all of them are singing out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus was God's Lamb, the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice that took away all of our sin, the intentional, the unintentional, that uh, atoned for our sins and also cured our rebellion, reconciling us to God. You know, in the Old Testament, there were two distinct types of lambs, and each one had its own specific person or purpose. There was the sacrificial lamb. Now, these were the lambs offered on the altar to atone for sin. But there was also the Passover lamb. Its blood was put on the doorway to protect from the angel of death. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, plays both of these roles for us. Uh, first, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, the lamb that takes away our sin. I have a slide here of several verses. Uh, Hebrews 9.22 Indeed, under the law, everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then 1 John 1, 7, And the blood of Jesus His Son purifies us from all sin. And 1 John 2, 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And this Lamb, the Lamb of God, surpassed that Lamb of the law. This Lamb of God atoned not only for unintentional, but also for intentional sins. Uh, Hebrews 9, 12 through 15 says, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. It says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to, that lead to death? And so we can see here the, the surpassing greatness of Jesus as the Lamb of God. Now, Jesus is not only the sacrificial lamb, Jesus is also the Passover lamb. I have a slide here of a verse from 1 Corinthians. In 5-7, Paul writes, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And it's interesting. In John's gospel, in his account of the crucifixion of Christ, he presents us a very clear picture of Jesus as the Passover lamb. You know, we are told us we are told Jesus was crucified on the day of Passover. At the third hour, which would be about nine o'clock in the morning, the high priest tied the Passover lamb to the altar. And at that moment, Jesus himself was being nailed to the cross outside the city. For six hours, the Passover lamb is left tied to the altar, waiting its fate. And for six hours, Jesus hung on the cross. At the ninth hour, about three o'clock in the afternoon, the Passover lamb is sacrificed. 
And Scripture tells us at that moment, Jesus cries out, It is finished, and then surrenders his life. Now, every year when the Jews would celebrate Passover, the Passover lamb would be sacrificed. But this was not a sacrifice for sins. The Passover lamb was killed each year as a reminder of what had happened at the first Passover. You remember the story of the Israelites, how they were slaves in Egypt. And God sent the ten plagues to force Pharaoh to let his people go. That final plague was the death angel would pass through the land, and the death angel would strike down the firstborn son in every household. But the Israelites are told, if you sacrifice a lamb and use its blood to mark your doorways, when the death angel sees that blood, it will pass over that house, and the firstborn son will be spared. So this lamb became the Passover lamb. It was protection, protection from death. Anyone under the blood of the Passover lamb was kept alive. Those not under the blood were dead. So Jesus is our Passover lamb, dying to protect us from death, not just to atone for our sins, but to save us from eternal death. Scripture points out over and over, the problem with sin is not just the acts themselves, but it's the spirit of sin that lies within us. It's this sinful nature that causes us to be rebels against God. This sinful nature that sentences us to death, spiritual death and eventually eternal death. I have a slide here showing a verse from Romans 8. Romans 8, 7 says, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So we do need to have our sins forgiven, but we also need to be given new life. We need to be freed from this body of death. And this is what Christ does as the Passover lamb. He provides the way for us to get out from under this curse of death. You know, there are many in our society who really don't understand what being a Christian involves. In their mind, a Christian is basically a better behaved version of a non-Christian. Christians and non-Christians are basically the same, but, you know, the Christian is the guy who obeys the rules. He doesn't drink. He doesn't cheat on his wife. He goes to church. You know, he's basically a good guy. Many non-Christians don't understand Christians are not just cleaned up versions of non-Christians. No, a Christian is someone who has been made totally new in Christ. A Christian is a person who used to be dead, but is now alive. I have a slide here of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul describes us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is gone The new has come. C.S. Lewis says, Jesus did not come to make bad people good, but to make dead people live. Jesus died not just so we could be forgiven of our sins and go to heaven. Now, that's a pretty good thing in and of itself. But Jesus died so that we could also inhabit a totally different reality. We could experience new life. When we look at what Scripture promises us about this life, it almost seems too good to be true. You know, Scripture tells us in this new life, 
We can be content in every circumstances. We can rejoice no matter what. We can give thanks in everything. Uh, we can love our enemies. We can rejoice in persecution and suffering. We can live a life free of malice and envy and bitterness and strife. It tells us God will give us the desires of our heart. And many non-Christians, when they hear these verses, they don't really believe this kind of life is possible. You know, the idea is, well, Scripture's kind of exaggerating. They don't see any way that this type of life can actually be true. But that's why it's important for understand, to understand Jesus' role as the Passover lamb. He came and died to atone for our sins, but also to free us from death, to raise us from death to new life in Him. You know, that first Passover night, all of the firstborn males were sentenced to death. Under the law, all who commit intentional rebellion against God are sentenced to death. The blood of the Passover lamb provided deliverance, a way out. Jesus Christ, as our Passover lamb, does the same thing. His blood on Calvary provides the way out from under death, the way to a new life. So as we look at this lesson, you know, we see the law couldn't help David. David was in a hopeless situation, a dead man walking. The only way this could end for David was death. His only hope was in the unfailing love of God. David cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And that love, God's incredible love, made itself known in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The good news for David and for us, God provided a sacrifice. God provided Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God Himself. So God has made the provision. It's up to us to take advantage of this. We can go through life as dead men walking, as dead even while we live, or we can have this life that Jesus promised. I, I want to close here with a slide from Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the Lamb of God that atones for our sins and frees us from death. We, we cannot thank you enough for this salvation that you have provided. And if there are those out there listening today who haven't experienced this, Lord, we pray that you would move and work in their hearts so that they too could have this new life that you promised in your name. Amen. <music>